It's only been a couple of times in my life, I can remember them very well, where I saw undiluted joy. I mean, just joy. Um, Skylar, I remember when you and I went right before COVID, when we went to Disney World, and, um, and we went to the Star Wars section, and Skylar loves Star Wars. And there's a couple of moments with a look on his face where I'm not sure if he knew we were in Tatooine or if we were on earth, that he was just mesmerized by joy, pure, unadulterated joy. Gosh, a couple of years ago, Mona and I went to Alaska and one of her dreams was always to see the Northern Lights. She always wanted to see the Northern Lights and one night at 4 a.m., when I, night too cold for me to think was enjoyable for anything, to see the look in her eyes of the beauty, the northern lights. The, the moment you see on someone's face, that, that's, the, that's the look we were made to have, that unadulterated, unmitigated joy. Just, it's just joy. It's interesting, the passage we're gonna look at this morning, he ends by saying that he is writing this to make our, both the author and the people reading it, their joy complete. And, and, and since my battle for life has been with cynicism, I, I just, I, I, there's been so seldom where I feel like I've really, really lived in that place of joy. And, and John, in his letter, after we're gonna look at this section and he ends it by saying that, that he's writing this. And it's very seldom in the Bible, you're told, if you understand what's being taught here, this is what you'll experience. I mean, very seldom are you told in the Bible that this is what this is going to produce in you. I mean, if you interpret it correctly, this is what you'll get. But in this section, we're told that if we understand the teaching of this book, there will be, and we've fully understood it and lived it out, let it get to the very core of our soul, we would have joy, complete, unadulterated joy. So as we enter this season of Christmas, I think one of the reasons that we don't have experienced much joy is that we at least for me, is we've lived through such a, we've misunderstood and we have such a lesser view of who Jesus is and a lesser view of what this is all about. And we settle for tinsel and Santas and we worry about our, how to pay the bills and we lose sight of what's taking place when we celebrate this incarnational God who came. And so, this morning, if you will, I'm gonna invite you to spend a little bit of time with me in 1 John. And, and maybe as God has been breaking open my cynical and hard heart this week, maybe he'll do the same to you. And, and maybe there'll be a coruscating from the very essence of what God's word would teach us about, him, about, about Christ 
there would be a growing sense of life and joy. Because isn't that what you want? The reason I've kept those pictures of Skylar and Mona in those times, I've got a picture of Mona when she was skydiving. Don't worry, there's no picture of me skydiving anywhere. And the look on her face, it's like a little girl. Those are the, those, those moments are supposed to be the moments that echo into eternity. That when we understand the way God has created us, who he is and what life is about in him, that's supposed to produce in spite of your circumstances, not happiness, joy. And if we're reading this correctly, that's John's hope when we read this book, First John together. So before we talk any more about God and before we talk about his word, Let's talk to him. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for for the glimmer, for the shadow that I see, even in my own cynical life sometimes, of what you made us for, for life in you and for real joy. Father, we settle for temporary happiness We settle for less than what you offer us. So this morning, would you recapture us with the beauty of your son? Would you capture us with the re, with the, the humanity and the divinity of your son and the miracle of the incarnation? Father, you know everyone in here, you're the sovereign God who's brought us together. So you know the people in this room that are struggling this morning with doubts and fears. And I pray that you would, um, I thank you that you brought them here. You know the people that are struggling with finances and families and well, you know every issue in this room. And so we bring them to you and we ask you to transform us. Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use our time to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, did you use this time to comfort and for all of us to equip us for the good work, for your glory and your great purposes. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. One more little disclaimer and then I'm gonna like to read the scripture to you. Usually my sermons are prepared by the prime timers. It's a confession, I admit. So what happens is we have a Bible study here every Thursday, and if you're, if you're not working and you're a man and you want to come to a Bible study, we, we get together and we've been going through Romans. But what you don't know is two weeks before I speak, I always come into that group and say, hey, guys, what do you think of this passage? And they teach me. And they basically write the sermon, and if it's a good sermon, I take credit for it. If it's a bad sermon, I'll, I'll just pull you aside and say, it's those prime timers, you know, they're... Uh, they're not very helpful. Um, and so if this sermon isn't very good this week, I need to tell you, I, I wasn't here this Thursday or the following Thursday, so I couldn't cheat. And so we're in real trouble. We're in real trouble. So if you see anybody that's in that primetime group, tell them Cofield really needs you and, and let them know. Well, with all that out of the way, let's now look at something that matters. Let's look at the word of God together. Would you stand if you can?
I'm going to read out of the from uh, John, First John one. It's the preamble. It's the beginning. And you'll note it's, it's, it sounds very similar to John 1, the Gospels. That's because that's who wrote it. Let's read this together, or I'll read it, God's word. That which was from the, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life that's made manifest that we have seen it and we testify to it and we claim it to you, the eternal life with which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this so that our joy may be complete. We are writing this so our joy may be complete. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. This isn't a typical letter that you'll find in the New Testament. It's almost more of a, it's, it'd be better understood as it was a, it's more of a sermon that John gave and then, uh, then was passed out to the different churches because it doesn't follow the logical linear fashion of a typical letter. He's dealing with an issue in the churches that he's loved. And this is the later part of John's life. This is toward the end of John's life. He's, he's an old man by now. Um, in the in the valleys where Ephesus would be, in, in modern day Turkey, and he's dealing with the churches have become uh, a little disconnected, and their teaching, especially about the person of Christ, has been um, hijacked, and there have been some some groups that have reeled off, and and you, you'll hear words like Gnostic, and we have our own versions of that today, but basically it's the idea where they either de- they deny the fact that that Jesus Christ was both fully human and fully God. The, the theologians would, use, would say, if, they were, if theologians were here with us this morning, they'd say, we're looking at the Christology, the idea of who is Christ. And who is Christ matters a lot. Um, as a matter of fact, um, one of the problems that, that, will ma- that makes Christmas kind of empty is the way that our culture kind of celebrates a, a very impotent view of who is Christ. He's just a good man. Matter of fact, you might have seen these commercials. They're, they're really well done. They're mostly in black and white. There's a, there's a narrator. I saw one in a, during a football game last, uh, yesterday. And it's, it was basically something like this. Um, you know, when we get together for Thanksgiving, our family fights, and sometimes we don't get together as much anymore. And, and it talks about the, the, this family that's not working out very well. And then it says, Jesus had a messy family. Jesus gets us. Um, you seen those commercials? It's not always about family. Sometimes it'll be about, you know, um, other issues that are in the news and it'll kind of give that same sort of deal. And, and, and there's something about that that is, is okay. But something about it seems um, missing. It, it's the sound of one hand clapping. It seems like, Something's missing. It, 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 uh, and what's missing is that they're asking you to focus on the humanity of Christ without talking about the divinity of Christ. And if all you have is the humanity of Christ, and he does get you, 
But if all you have is the humanity of Christ, you have an impotent God who has no authority to save you. You, have no, you, have, you don't have a, a relationship with one who can live a, can live a substitutional existence with you about your sin and about your struggle and about your sorrow. And so what you, if you have, you're, if your Christology only has Christ as man, you have an understanding God who will sit with you in the sewer as you drown and die. But if you have a God who's only divinity, and to say only divinity is like saying only a guabillion dollars, if he's only divinity, there, there is a sense, does he understand what's going on? And the beautiful, beautiful picture, and it seems like what John is saying to this church is, listen, I want your joy to be complete and my joy to be complete. I want you to, we'll start with this letter with you understanding your Christology, who is Christ? Because that matters. Because who we worship, who lives inside us, who is transforming us is not merely a man who gets you, but who God who redeems you. And so we look at this passage together and it begins, <coughs> excuse me. Um, if you look, it begins with, and, and, and this, this you'll, you'll see this in Genesis 1, you see it in John 1. This book, we don't know who, it, who wrote it by, by title. I mean, he never says during the book, this is John, but, um, <laughs> but John has a tell. Um, a tell is a poker word that most of you don't know because you're good Christians. It means that, that there's something that there's something that kind of pops up that tells you who it is. In his gospels, John never mentions his name either. What is, what is, how does John always refer to himself? As a disciple that Jesus loved. And so it, does, it makes a lot of sense that he's not gonna, in his, in his letters to his churches, uh, he's gonna say, hey, it's about me. I'm John just writing this letter to you. There's nothing wrong when Paul does that and makes sure we know who he is, but that's just not John's personality. And so I, I've heard, I've read a couple, di, a couple commentaries that have, that have questioned the authorship of this because, because he doesn't claim it. And I thought, well, that's, that's, that's more proof that it is John than it isn't. But it also begins the same way John, the gospel of John begins with a preamble that kind of puts things in place. If you remember in the gospel of John, it begins with that same idea of the beginning. It talks about the word was with us and the word was God. And so it seems really important to John. He's lived his whole life now. He's known Jesus. who's an eyewitness. It seems really important to John to get things correct. You've got to start with your understanding of who is Christ. And so I'd like to just speak for a few minutes about the deity of Jesus that Jesus Christ is fully God. Now, if you fall asleep during this sermon, and it would not be the first time I put people to sleep, I, have a, I think that's my spiritual gift. If um, this is what I want, this is where we're going. Remaining who he was, he became who he was not to redeem what was lost and broken for the glory of his father. Uh, Jesus uh, we know is divine. How do we know of the divinity of Christ? As a matter of fact, 
This is, and I'm gonna get in a little bit of trouble because you actually know this about, but from what I understand, part of Mormon theology that is so messed up is their view of the divinity of Jesus. Is it, am I close? Okay. Um, but the, the divinity of Jesus, they, they kind of picture Jesus as just a good guy. And if you are a good girl or a good guy and try really hard, you can be a little Jesus too. Let's all be little Jesuses together. Now that might sound really good, but I've been trying to be a little bit better my whole life and it hasn't worked out for me very well. It doesn't work out for you either. Because what's wrong with me is much deeper than just trying harder we'll ever get. We need a transformation, not just a, a little more information. And so the, the divinity of Jesus. Um, how do we know that, 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 this is, that he's fully God? Well, scripture teaches us that. Um, I've already mentioned John 1, Revelations 22, 15. Jesus says, we actually sang this a few moments ago. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Romans 9, 5, Titus 2, 23, Hebrews 1, 8, 2 Peter 2, um, uh, 1, 1. All those that would be passages that would speak of the deity, the divinity of Jesus. The word Lord is, used, is allowed to be used to describe him throughout Scripture as a word that in, in those days would not be... Uh, to the Old Testament, it would, only, it would not be used in the way that we would might use Lord, and, and sometimes in the New Testament it's used in a more casual sense. But the readers of the Old Testament, anyone reader of the Old Testament, the idea that Jesus was called Lord was a, would be significant referencing to his deity. Um, in John 8, gosh, this is, remember when Jesus, they almost stoned Jesus? They didn't stone him because they didn't like him. They stoned him because he claimed he was God. They wanted to stone him because he said, they asked about Abraham and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And you go, well, what does that mean? Well, don't you remember in the Old Testament when God described himself as the I am? And he says, before Abraham, that means before Abraham, who you think is before me. No, I'm before Abraham because God is, Jesus is eternal. Before Abraham, I am. And so they got, so that, that's when they, they, they ripped their clothes and were gonna stone him because you don't claim to be God in front of a bunch of Pharisees and rabbis, unless you are. 84 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. It's an interesting phrase. By the way, nobody else ever calls Jesus son of man. Just he does. He refers to himself, he's re, <laughs> like to buy a vowel. He, re, he refers to himself as the son of man. Um, that's a reference to Daniel 7. And any reader of the Old Testament, any good Jew who heard him when he said he was the son of man would go, oh, that's, that's, that's a reference to Daniel. Daniel 7, where it talks about the Son of Man being the Messiah. Um, so those, there's scriptural evidence. There's, there's evidence of, of traits of Jesus that made him, that um, he calmed a storm. Uh, he knew people's thoughts. Here's the one. He forgave sins. Um, next time you're going through Ingalls, 
and they say paper or plastic, say, I forgive you for using paper in the past. Your sins are forgiven. And just stand there and see what they do. They'll go crazy in aisle three because, because it'd be absurd for you to go around and tell people, absolve you of your sin. Jesus did that. I mean, remember when the paralyzed guy was brought by his friends before Jesus and they, they push him down through the roof of the, of, the, of the place where Jesus is speaking and everybody's looking up and he's coming down and everybody's going, what's he gonna do? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Who does that? Oh, crazy people do that or, or the God of the universe does that. Those are kind of your only choices. So Jesus um, forgives sins. Um, he accepted worship. He, was, he allowed people to worship him. Um, and so the claims for deity are throughout scripture, both within scripture um, and outside of scripture, even without talking about the obvious evidence of, of being raised from the dead, but uh, Jesus claims um, to be fully God. What difference does that make? If Jesus isn't fully God, he can't forgive your sin. If he's not fully God, he cannot represent, he cannot be the representative obedience to God that Adam was the representative disobedience to God. He can't be a, well, we'll look at, the, we'll look at all the different things that, that this doctrine of Christology gives us in a few minutes. Let's talk about the other side of it. By the way, if you ignore the, if you ignore the divinity of, God, of Jesus, you'll tend to go to two extremes, either liberalism, which, which kind of makes Jesus as a good guy, you ought to try to be more like, um, or legalism where you're gonna prove yourself to be good enough, uh, both of which are bankrupt systems of, of life. Um, now let's look at the other side. Um, when, when John writes this, after he says that he was from the beginning, he then says, which we have seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That's a reference back to John, the gospel of John. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. He then goes to, to, be, to use very visceral terms to talk about he was human. Jesus was human. He was, he was in the flesh. He was in the flesh. We touched him. We saw him. We talked with him. We ate with him. We knew him. He, he was, it's not just theory. Christianity is not just a theory to believe. It's a person to know. It's not just a group of ideas that, that hold us together. It is, a, it is a relationship with a living God brought to us through the work of Christ on the cross that, that makes us an actual family. So, uh, how do we know that, uh, what do we know about him and his humanity? He had a human body. It says in the Bible, he grew throughout childhood. It says that he grew in stature and wisdom. Um, I'm not sure I believe the, the, the Christmas carol that says that he didn't cry 
Uh, I, I wouldn't take your theology from that. I, I just, I'm just saying, Christmas carols are beautiful, but they're not necessarily theologically accurate um, because he, has, he was a baby he, um, that grew in, in stature and wisdom. He had a human body. He felt hungry after he fasted. He felt tired on the cross. He said he was thirsty. Um, so he had a human body. The Bible clearly teaches that. Um, it, it's funny, when you see some of the old grand artwork from the Renaissance period, it'll sometimes picture Jesus in, as like kind of, you know, it'll be a, a regular picture, then there'll be Jesus, and he'll look almost like a ghost over the crowd with a, with a little thing on his head. And because they, they, they were focusing on his divinity in some of those old ancient paintings. Um, but he was... He was seen by people, the people of the day saw him as a, as a, as a man, they approached him as a man. Um, and so he had a human body, he had a human mind, he had human emotions. Remember when he said he marveled, that's got nothing to do with cartoons, he marveled at the centurion's faith, remember? Remember when it said he wept for sorrow at his friends at Lazarus' tomb? He wept over the city of Jerusalem? Remember when he saw that people were turning his, his father's temple, his father's house into a place of, uh, of capitalism and gain? Um, by the way, you can get a copy of this sermon for $2 from me later on. <laughs> that would have been an example of that. I'm just kidding. I'm not. So, but, but he had human emotion because when he saw what they were doing to his father's house, he turned over tables and cleared house. So he not only did a human body, he had a human, a human mind, he had human emotions. Um, but here's, here's what changes the story. He was sinless. And because we have fully human, fully God, who is sinless, the whole narrative can change. Um, and, and that's why, what difference does this make kind of comes in this place. The represent, Adam, the first Adam represents uh, the ultimate, um, it's representative of the disobedience that we have, all have to God. A, 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 a theology that sometimes is hard to understand, original sin, the idea that we have a sinful nature. It's not hard to experience because it only takes a few moments with anybody to realize that we're all pretty basically selfish. But, the, but when we theologically talk about that, sometimes they'll talk about that being original sin, the idea that our sin nature comes to us through, in a rep, because Adam had a kind of a representative disobedience that is then passed on. But what does Paul call Jesus? He calls Jesus the new Adam or the last Adam. And what does he mean by that? Well, if the first Adam was a representative disobedience that we then inherit, if you are a child of God, Jesus is your representative obedience. And that's why you can't have a, there, there has to be that divine, sinless uh, human example for that to be part of your regenerated Christian soul. So that's the idea of, um, it's also the substitute sacrifice. We're taught, we're, we're taught that um, in Hebrews would tell us that we, there's a substitutional 
reality that takes place because we deserved death and there needed to be a perfect sacrifice. No one human being could take on all of our sin. No, 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 nobody, no, no matter how good they could be, could, could carry the weight of our sin and our struggle and our selfishness and our brokenness and our sorrow. And so um, that substitutional, um, that, that the substitutional reality that, that of, of sacrifice, that, that, that what some people, what, what theologians will sometimes talk about, the imputed righteousness, that because of the righteousness of a man who was sinless and a God who's divine um, can substitute our place for punishment and we are imputed his righteousness. That couldn't be given to us by something less than something that was fully divine and fully human. Um, Ultimately, it also fulfills God's original purpose that man would rule over creation. He's the mediator between man and God. He is also our example and our pattern to life. Remaining what he was, God in heaven, he became what he was not, man on earth. Without giving up the divinity He became man on earth, probably the most amazing miracle of all of creation. As the divinity became humanity and walked on this earth to redeem it back unto himself. It's called the incarnation. It's what we ultimately are celebrating Christmas. Remaining what he was, divine, he became what he was not, man, to redeem what was lost and broken for the glory and the sake of his father. John believes if you understand that, that'll take you one more step toward joy. If you understand that, the pressure is off you because it's not about you, it's about him. If you understand that, your goodness isn't the issue, his is. It'll compel you to live. It'll compel you to live with a, with a courage. And, and that this fully divine, fully eternal, fully man who died for you, Paul gets so enamored when he talks about lives in you and empowers you to live a different way. So there is a way that doesn't involve cynicism. Why? That's good news for me. There is a way that, remember, God doesn't promise happy. He doesn't promise easy. What he promises is joy and purpose. And that can't happen if you have an impotent God who's really just gets it. He gets you. No, he saves you and then he indwells in you and he transforms you and you're his sons and daughters. If you understood that, if you understood that, you'd 
There'd be a twinkle in your eye. There'd be a little bit of a smile on your face because you would be starting to move toward that complete joy that comes from knowing who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing now in your life and in this world. May our joy be more complete this season.